and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today with us is Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Sarah, welcome to the show. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're studying and what your PhD is about? Yeah, so I'm, I'm based in the English department at UCL um, and I'm looking at narrative responses to the war on terror, specifically looking at the construction of military masculinity. So I've just finished a chapter looking at literary responses um, and I'm moving on now to looking at the war on terror on screen. Uh, So that's going to include a few films um, and also um, the TV series Generation Kill. And then later on, I'll be looking more at kind of like digital content and video games as well. That's a really um, interesting project so kind of a hopefully a simple question to start off with but I think it's uh, one that maybe not everyone knows what do you consider to be within the bounds of the so-called war on terror what uh, sort of specific geopolitical context are we talking about that's a really good question so what I'm mainly looking at is Iraq simply because that is the that's what's been written about most that's kind of what occupies um, the collective imagination when we think about the war on terror So we'll be looking at the period kind of from 9-11 and then focusing on the war in Iraq, mainly around um, up until about 2007, although responses to that and certainly literary responses are coming a lot later. So lots of the literary responses I'm looking at have been published in the last sort of um, five years, although I will be touching a little bit on Afghanistan. And then with certain theory and certain film, we'll also be looking at um, the drone campaign, which, of course, was continued um, and ramped up really by Obama um, in places like uh, Yemen and Pakistan. So quite a um, quite a broad definition then. And geographically, uh, do you find that most of the literary responses you're finding are set within Iraq, within Afghanistan, or are you also looking at the kind of at home responses yeah so the the text that i'm looking at try to um sort of negotiate those two spaces um so lots of them will take place sort of half in iraq or half in country and then um lots of them are about the the transition of the soldier into veteran and kind of the the way that your masculine identity um shifts or, or changes when um, when you come back into that home space um and a lot of the time the way that they're articulated is is that these spaces are kind of collapsed really the the military space and the home space insofar as they're no longer a soldier but also because of um trauma on a personal level but also um because of the sort of many crises that um face the domestic space um in the post 911 uh, era there's often not a home to come back to um in in the sort of strict traditional sense of the word. Uh, so lots of the texts that I look at will look at things like um, Hurricane Katrina and the opioid crisis, the financial crash. So these texts kind of um, try to find a, a, a dialogue between um, between these two spaces. And, um, and that's a lot of what my kind of analysis of these literary responses focuses on, is how these, how these kind of spheres interact. And is this... I mean, I assume it is, as it's uh, your PhD, but is this the first time that someone sort of started to look at military masculinity in this period? I ask because um, what you were just talking about, this sort of you can never go home again idea, obviously has quite a long literary history, like the veteran returning changed and, and 
no longer belonging is you know it's as much a rambo of course thing as anything else and and longer before that as well so are you are you the first person to bring it so current so so there's a, a sort of a burgeoning field of scholarship i would say um so lots of the studies on in this area have looked at, at masculinity in kind of a um in the scope of a, a broader study in sort of soldier identity or um or just general sort of narrative responses to the war on terror so i'm i will be honing in just on this idea of masculinity um in its various forms so i would say that i'm con i'm contributing to a growing conversation and especially looking at how masculinity is employed ideologically as much as it is kind of experienced in um in a, in a personal sense it's and and i think that you're absolutely right um that it, it, there's uh, several angles that um that I'm, i'm pitching my response into one of them being this kind of lineage of soldier home narratives from like you, know, you can think of hemingway and even before hemingway and then all the way up to vietnam and then this kind of this like new wave of it and i think that these new responses I think that's why there's such a um a focus on the domestic space and and what, what all of this kind of stuff that's going on at the same time as um the war in Iraq um because it adds a new kind of dimension to um to what the soldier experience is and then well obviously when we consider things like race and class and this idea of the military welfare state as well um following the um the end of the draft um which i think is um a distinguishing feature between vietnam um but there's definitely there's definitely a continuation and i also think that that's why iraq it takes um such like a central position um in these in these responses is, is because it's kind of become like the new vietnam just in terms of how it's been maybe romanticized maybe it's been um it's also of course highly controversial um and it's also a war that america lost What do you wish that you could talk about more with your research? That's a really good question and I feel like this is um something that I'm sure you guys experience as well once you sort start going down a rabbit hole and you think oh I wish I could um I wish I could keep going with this um but there's just stuff that you've just got to you've just got to cut it out. Um so there's quite a lot um and I guess it, having having looked mainly at literary responses so far it's all of these sort of adjacent events that are going on alongside the war on terror um the war in Iraq so i've i've just been reading loads about hurricane katrina which i'm finding really really interesting and i would love to read more into sort of the the broader implications of hurricane katrina because it just opens so many new doors and then i and then i start finding out that oh, i haven't even thought about the Iraq for a while now um so yeah so that so i guess kind of like all of these all of these other things that are all sort of bubbling up together with um with uh, the war in Iraq as well yeah it's like an incredibly tumultuous time in the in the states i, I mean that feels sort of like a a postdoc and it would be one that would maybe transition quite nicely out of what you're currently doing if you were in the mood to add more work to your life Yeah, definitely, definitely. And there's also the the opioid crisis. So I wrote a bit about um Nico Hawkins book Cherry, um the film of which came out last week. I don't know if you guys saw it. I don't I don't recommend it. It's terrible. I think it's the worst adaptation of a book I've 
Wow. And I've seen the From Hell adaptation, so... I think I've seen that. <laughs> I don't remember it well. <laughs> I wasn't a fan. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so there's all these kind of things going on, like the opioid crisis as well. Like, I guess, like, what's interesting about Cherry is it's the first, it's the first book that um, addresses the opioid crisis head-on and does it sort of in parallel with the Iraq War in a way that totally sort of removes the Iraq War from the centre of our reading experience normally the war like a war story is a war story right and that's what you that's what you read about but but in cherry it kind of just becomes an anecdote in the wider scope of a guy's life and it becomes a, a, a novel about about the opioid crisis so yeah i kind of got to the end of that and started thinking am i writing about the war anymore or am i just writing about the opioid crisis um yeah so so there's loads there's loads of other avenues of, of explanation that i'm i'm hoping that i can one day we want to. I was going to say, I think this is actually quite a necessary thing that's having to happen, and it's happening in my research as well to some extent, is that to produce meaningful interventions as academics into the field of like particularly war and culture studies, where there's a lot of work that's already there, you kind of have to look at what makes something a war, and then almost like pull back a little bit and just be like a war doesn't happen in a limited geographical location it doesn't happen in a a, a vacuum and our, our interventions into the study of that war actually need to incorporate things that aren't you know people with guns shooting at each other to be at all meaningful and especially when you incorporate the idea of it it's no longer framed as war or very rarely it's it's always defense now right and that kind of that that adds a, a new dimension there because it's because it, it it sort of isolates the the United States and and reinforces this kind of like the, these like ideological processes of it of it happening over there and it's nothing to do with us when actually it's it's everything to do with what's going on in the domestic sphere as well and like that kind of like doubling process is what what makes that ideology function um so well and then and and then in addition to to all of these other, all of this other stuff going on, you, you've got things like increased surveillance and militarized police forces, and all of these all of these aspects of warness um, or militarism are being very maybe not so subtly, but but integrated into daily quotidian life for a um, for a for a, a, a United States civilian and British civilian European. Um, without us necessarily thinking that the war is at home so much. So another thing that I wanted to ask, um, I don't know how old you are, but I would assume that you have some memories of this period, right? Like you were aware of the war in Iraq when it was happening. Or, um, so what's it like sort of engaging with this stuff when you have your own personal connections to it, your own personal understanding of it. Yeah, so so I was 10 when um, the Iraq war started. Um, so I was I was conscious of it, but not, you know, not engaged with it. I remember the protests happening um, and I remember vaguely these conversations about WMDs without really knowing what that stood for um, or what the importance was. And so I guess like my, from my position at the moment is is it's interesting for me to be able to go back and think critically about these events that were occupying my parents' lives and that I was aware of on the news all the time and to be able to look back um, 
and kind of piece those things together. It's quite it's quite interesting to flesh these things out, really. I guess, but from you know, from having witnessed it as a as a child. Like when I get start talking to Sarah, in my experience, it's very like, oh look, it's kind of the same but different. But like, <laughs> yeah. how do you deal with working with masculinity? It's such a like slippery thing right like what approaches have you found to kind of draw the lines around what is masculinity and and use it yeah that's something that I'm sort of continually grappling with as I um as I go along and I I suppose what I'm what I'm focusing on at the moment is masculinity as a as a, a structural um ideological component of um, broader culture of militarism. So that involves kind of looking at constructions of masculinity in the, in the soldier and veteran figure, but then also looking at how they are positioned within, coming back to this idea of gendered spaces, and how they're kind of um, oriented, I guess. So looking at the moment at, at the films that I'm studying, if you, if you take films like American Sniper and The Hurt Locker, and also Generation Kill, Masculinity is, or military masculinity, I should say, is, is constructed as a as a kind of um, an exceptional sort of professional warrior class. Um, and you'll, and depending on what film you're looking at, you might you might get the kind of the transition scene, you know, the kind of like full metal jacket or style thing where they go through their training and they 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 sort of graduate from being like a civilian man to a military man. But then but then other films won't do that, and I think that that choice not to include that training has implications for how the military class is, is constructed. Is it kind of is it something that you can opt into and be trained into or is it is it, is it more of like a, a sort of a uh, a, a god given thing or a, you know, Yeah, like an in, an inherent quality that makes the military man something else from the start, like I know you're talking about something very serious, but all I can think about is the training sequence in Mulan. I knew you were going to say Mulan. <laughs> I could feel it. I could yeah. feel like I was. I could see Anna. Like that is that is such like a good observation as well because because of, like obviously the song. Um, uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's such a that's such a good point. Well, I think I think it's a very interesting reflection on kind of American military rather than Chinese military because in the original poem Mulan is actually already a skilled martial art uh, she's skilled in yeah. martial arts. She's quite well aware of how to fight um and this whole process doesn't actually happen. So, I think it's a lot more reflective of kind of the way American mind and American audiences want to see their military um, and want to see her integrated into this male space because, you know, she she pretends to be a man in her behaviour as well as in the clothes she wears. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know much about military history in this period, but and obviously you were focusing on masculinity a bit more, so that might be a little bit outside of it, but how is masculinity impacted by the fact that for the first time in history you have women in you know larger numbers uh, drafted and participating in this military action how does this impact the way we view the male soldier um, as opposed to a female soldier? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that I've been considering quite recently um, in relation to sort of famous female service members such as um, Jessica Lynch uh, and Lindy England as well. And th this is kind of how I started thinking about the military space and the home space and as gendered 
spaces. If we think about uh, Jessica Lynch in particular, her personal story was very much appropriated by the media in order to, despite her being a soldier, in order to have her kind of occupy a domestic position in um, in the home space that um, it, it, it meant that it kind of reinforced the masculinity of her rescuers, of her male American rescuers. I feel, should I should I give a little bit of a, an explanation on yeah. Jessica Lynch? <laughs> yes, yeah, so Jessica Lynch was a, um, a prisoner of war. She was captured in the first days of the invasion of Iraq. What was kind of striking about her story um, is that she was captured uh, alongside up to about 20 other service members, but she was 19 years old. She was white, blonde. She was from um, a small town in West Virginia. What with this being in the first few days of the invasion, her capture was actually quite timely from a media perspective because it enabled this kind of outpouring of, of quite jingoistic support for the war because it became a damsel in distress narrative. Lots of the the, the facts or the aspects of her, her captivity were falsified by the media in order to, to generate this this kind of mythology around around her capture and then her rescue. So she was rescued from an Iraqi hospital by um, US Army Special Forces. And so you can see how uh, this 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 narrative started to take shape, where we had this kind of like professional masculine warrior class of rescuers rescuing this uh, this damsel in distress, vulnerable um, white blonde woman, which is really quite some quite like interesting sort of acrobatics done by the media and by the the military's PR wing because she was also a soldier. It required them kind of very delicately balancing her identity as a, as a woman and as somebody who's wanted to be a homemaker eventually in order to avoid her compatriots her, um, her comrades as being feminized along with her um, as a soldier in captivity so it was quite quite interesting kind of uh, dynamics going on in the reporting of her rescue and, and it and it worked because it's remained in the collective memory um, as being kind of a, a point of pride uh, despite the fact that it's all come out now that it was all um, it was all sensationalized and falsified I think it's also worth mentioning that she during her her capture Shoshana Johnson was a black female uh, soldier. Um, she was also captured um, and she was rescued uh, a hell of a lot later than Jessica Lynch. And also um, her Jessica Lynch's friend, uh, Laurie Piestula, was um, the first, I think the first Native American woman to die um, in combat fighting for the United States. But um, these two women didn't get half as much media attention as Jessica Lynch did, which I think is extremely telling in itself. And, it, and so it kind of generated this narrative of, of a, yeah, of, of a, a feminine and domestic homeland that, that Jessica Lynch belonged to because she was more of a woman than she was a soldier in need of rescue. And then, of course, Lindy England representing almost the exact opposite uh... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, really interesting how kind of these few examples of of women in the military are able um, are kind of appropriated by by media narratives in order to feed different stories, different mythologies that ultimately all kind of lead into the same sort of ideology. Especially with Lindy England, she was she was masculinized, um, where where Jessica Lynch was feminized. Um, and I think that I think class plays a big role in this as well. I think that she was she was very much portrayed as being white trash, essentially, whereas um, Jessica Lynch was, um, I guess, 
was more of a like a hometown girl exactly a hometown girl a petty bourgeois like hometown girl yeah very very interesting how those two those two women are uh, are remembered yeah yeah for anyone who is listening and and doesn't know lindy england is the woman in the uh the abu Ghraib torture photographs uh definitely don't recommend looking them up but uh she is quite um quite butch in presentation i'd say like uh more so than maybe even your typical sort of female american soldier at the time i think that's you know thinking about like combatant masculinity in this time it's interesting to see what makes a you know like masculinity expressed in a way that's divorced from kind of bodily maleness as like a set of behaviors yeah definitely uh, that aren't just to do with definitely it's all about those like power relationships right and so and and this idea as well that i was listening to an interview the other day about um how american soldiers are told that it's part of their kind of um initiation they're told that iraqis or um it's specifically in the context of the iraq war let's say iraqis don't view human life the same way we do here in america and so you know you can kind of um you can treat them differently, basically, um, and that, and you see that played out really, really awfully in Abu Ghraib, and that's where those, and that's also where those gender dynamics come in because it because it sort of enables like a, yeah a, a masculinization and a, and a feminization um, of um, of Iraqi prisoners. <laughs> this happens all the time, like every single time I talk about my research, it just starts getting really bleak. <laughs> Oh, you get the same, Georgia. That's actually a great opportunity then for us to pivot a little bit. Away from the bleak <laughs> uh, and towards the positive, because that's the point of the podcast. Uh, we try and find the lighter side. We try and uh, sort of break with the sort of more emotionally challenging parts of what we do and remember what's funny and what's good. So, yeah, do you have uh, something to, to share with us? Um, yes, yeah, so I was um, I was thinking about what on earth I could um, I could discuss, having spent you know the large part of my my research experience in the, the wasteland that has been uh, COVID nineteen lockdown. I was thinking about the complete abject boredom that I've been in for the past year, sitting in my four walls, writing, reading, writing, and then there came a point where it it got so much last year. Uh, last summer that I just decided that to to inject a little bit of uh, fun into my writing I'd see how many um how many Simpsons references I could sneak into my to my thesis um it started off with um thinking about I made a reference to Principal Skinner's Vietnam <laughs> flashbacks which is just a genius thread run through uh, that series and once I'd woven in I thought ah that's quite good actually <laughs> how many more can I get in here and so so yeah so it started from there so I started I just started planting little references little easter eggs for myself like all through the uh all through the the writing process which was um you know it it was it was it was momentarily um amusing for me I was kind of sat at my computer like Beavis and Butthead like (laughs) just laughing at myself yeah (laughs) how many of them have survived into your uh your current draft so not not that many because it kind of got to a point where I was like, okay, I've got to take my research seriously now. But Principal's going to still there. I've also got a reference to Barney Gumble's short film that he made about his um, addiction because of <laughs> um, in the context of uh, the sort of the 
sanctification of the of the the, the traumatized veteran in, in lots of these like jingoistic Hollywood films. You you know the bit where he's like, "Don't cry for me, I'm already dead." <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, but then so, yeah, it, so it does lose that. to man getting hit in the groin by football. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Hans Rollman, every time. <laughs> um, yeah, I hadn't thought about the uh, the skin of Vietnam stuff. It's been a really long time since I've watched The Simpsons. Like, it's just one of those things, like, it was always on when you were a kid, and suddenly it's like you'd have to go and find it to watch it kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Skinner was kind of like a like a hero, right? He Yeah, Armin Tanzarian. That's his real name. He he he, oh, he yeah. stole the um sorry, I'm just gonna totally like that. Yeah no please. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's he stole um Armin Tanzarian stole Principal Skinner's um identity as a as a Vietnam veteran. Right. I, to, uh, to, I guess, uh, you know what, I guess there's a whole world of uh, research I could do about like the transition from war to home, back to like small town American life. Maybe I'll just abandon what I'm doing and just like, <laughs> just look at uh, war references in the Simpsons. Sounds like a good postdoc. <laughs> you could do like, like, they've got that whole, um, the whole episode about joining the Navy. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Oh, subliminal and superliminal <laughs> advertising. What's superliminal advertising? He just leans out of the window. Hey, join the navy. <laughs> so good. Well, uh, Sarah, all that's left to say is thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant to have you on the podcast this week. Really interesting to learn more about your research. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. Thank you for hosting. <laughs> thank you, Georgia. Thank you, Sarah, again. And remember, uh, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens in the podcast stays in the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.